Welcome to the final edition of Undercover Mental Health. I just want to say thank you to headsupguys.org, womenshealth.gov, two amazing resources our nonprofit and people can look at and learn from in the privacy of their own homes. And because of my guest today, I want to mention the British Columbia Firefighters Burn Fund. Every firefighter that gets hired in this province and the Yukon is more than willing to donate their time and most of all, be really proud of the organization that they work for and they're able to raise awareness and funds for people that might get burned. And one of the coolest things about the Burn Fund is they have something called Burn Camp and it's where kids can go, burn survivors, they meet other people and they build lifelong friendships. Super cool Burn Camp. And uh, I can't imagine a better guest than NHLer Aaron Volpatti. His story is amazing. If you don't know who Aaron is, please hop on Amazon and check out Biter by Aaron Volpatti. It is an amazing read. Aaron, welcome to Undercover Mental Health. Thanks, Steve. Thanks for having me. You, you've uh, been busy. You've been on a lot of shows. You've been like all the big networks have had you on. You're out there promoting your book. What has that been like? It's been a bit of a whirlwind, but it's been fun. I've learned, you know, some of the media stuff. I have a new appreciation for live TV. I remember when I did one with Murph, Dan Murphy there in Vancouver at the Canucks game and the pressure that these guys, that's like counting down in your ear as you're talking. And so that was kind of cool to be a part of some of those things. Yeah, mostly it was really cool to go back. So I basically hit everywhere I played hockey. So we were out in D.C. I was in Providence. Uh, I was at the Canucks game, local in Okanagan, Revelstoke. And we've been on the road for for a couple months and just looking to, to chill a little bit before Christmas. And then got a couple more in the new year, one in Kelowna, one in Winnipeg. And uh, we'll see where we go from there. So you, you grew up in Revelstoke? Born and played, raised in Revelstoke. Played minor hockey through Revelstoke. And then how did you end up with the Vernon Vipers? So they were affiliated with the junior B team in Revelstoke. So I played, made it on the junior B team just through that affiliation. The Vipers were one of the best teams in Canada at the time. So for me, they were kind of always that team um, that if, hey, if I could go play junior A, that's where I wanted to go play. And it just happened that it worked out with the affiliation. So, And the Vernon Vipers is very connected with a lot of East Coast universities. They even send American yeah. kids up to play on that team. I don't know as much now, but probably the same. So a lot of the universities have like feeder teams in a way, if that makes sense. So like, for example, when I played uh, junior, Nanaimo was like Cornell's team. So they'd have like four or five guys every year go. And Vernon, we had a couple guys at Brown. They just sent a couple more guys to Brown. So you almost build like relationships. Everything's relationships in this world, right? So I think you build those relationships. You And then, like you said, you can feed young players there and go develop, right? We were a little trailer court, very, you know, blue-collar family. My dad worked for the railway. My mom was a server at a restaurant. My childhood was like, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood. So I think that, I think that gave me a little bit of predisposed grit with just the way that I was raised my parents were they worked their asses off just to I mean hockey is an expensive sport we didn't have much money right and so 
I look back now with appreciation of how, you know, they, they mostly just cultivated the tightness for our family. Like we were a really tight knit family and it was really cool. Yeah. And then just a lot of sports, like my dad was a very athletic guy. He was a golden gloves boxer. So I boxed as a kid growing up, which uh, showed up later, thankfully, and helped me out there. Yeah, like he was the Canadian enduro motocross champion. So he was uh, he was a beast. And he always just instilled like the only rule is you got to work. You got to work. I don't care what you do. Just do it your as hard as you can. I don't give a shit if you're good at it. You know what I mean? Just as long as you work harder than anyone. So that's always been there. That was kind of my childhood uh, in Revelstoke. You know, we just, yeah, I had a blast. I dealt with like some bullies like any other kid might deal with. But for the most part, it was pretty smooth sailing for me and just the way I was brought up, thankfully. But I mean, the big part of my story through hockey was I wasn't really that good. I mean, aside from this whole burn injury, which, you know, we'll talk about, obviously, uh, I was never supposed to play pro hockey before that. I played house hockey at age 14 in Revelstoke and I was an above average minor hockey player, but I wouldn't have made triple A. I would have got cut. I got cut from select teams and then snuck in to the Vipers as a fighter. This is when fighting was a, you know, a big part of the game, uh, especially back in the early 2000s. It was it was a mean game. That's how I made it. And that's how I stayed in the league as a fighter. I, I only scored one goal my first year in, in Vernon. That was my job. I was I was the scrapper. I mean, I could always hit and, and skate. That was my game. And the fighting sort of came from that that role. I mean, anyone that knows hockey kind of has a better idea and understanding of why there is fighting. And it, it just polices the game in a way. And it can be used as a momentum shift kind of thing. And again, at the end of the day, it, it, it's a man's game. It was a mean game. And Better than swinging sticks at each other's head. If you got a problem, let's fight and we'll get it over and we'll we'll move on, kind of thing, right? I guess that's just painting the picture of sort of my childhood, who I was as as a player, I guess, uh, in Vernon. So my son is like he just turned seven, so he's like full obsessed. So I never watched a lot of hockey for the last five years, and now I'm back because he loves it. So we watch hockey again, and uh, it seems like it's picking up the whole fighting again, and. I think you're seeing that maybe that shift going. It's a copycat league. So teams that are winning now, the cups are, they're skilled, but they're, they're playing a big game, heavy game. And I mean, you look at some of the guys that still have jobs, there's not going anywhere. I don't think so. Me and my son were just watching the other night and somebody got hit and it was, I thought it was a clean hit, but people come right in to, to fight that guy. Right. Like, well, that's my, that's my issue. I have like, again, if that's part of the game, but I mean, when I played like, you make a big hit, it's like, okay, it's part of the game. I don't think you need to have to fight for every big hit you make. I do have a issue with that. It's like, well, I got to fight every time I make a good hit. Like, I don't know. I think about the way we played in junior in Vernon. Like, I'd be out of the league if if we did what we used to do. Like, we used to start the game myself and another guy would start every game on defense. We'd actually, like, start in our own end. And we'd be shot out of a cannon and our centerman would win it every game. He never lost a draw to the other guy lined up on defense. And I was like in our own end, like I said, he'd flip it in perfectly every time. And him and I just went and we like we hurt some guys doing that. And if we did that now, we'd be out of the league. Just different. It's times have changed. Your first season, you got one goal. What was your second season like? Yeah, the second season, I I added a layer I get some layers to my game. So I was playing, you know, third, fourth line penalty killing a bit more. 
put up, I think I put up like 18 points in 60 games. So, you know, better every level I climbed, I always had to go back to the grinder because I knew that's what would let me get there and stay there. And then from there, I would add those layers, right? I did that at every level. Yeah, I was playing a little bit more. And then, so we lost to actually Surrey in the league finals that year in 2005. And back then, I don't know what the kids do now, but back then we would go party, you know, or we'd do our week long bender. And that's, you know, it's just what we did. And that's when this whole incident happened. We were in, I think it was day two of this, this week long party that we would do. And we decided to go out camping in the bush 30 minutes out of town. When I went going back to like the childhood, once I turned like probably like 16, that's when I like started feeding that young ego a little bit. I liked the attention maybe from girls, anything with adrenaline, you know, I craved. And I just thought it was invincible and untouchable, like a, a lot of us, maybe especially young, young kids do, right? And I was always just, I was a pyro. So I was messing around with fire and gas all the time and doing stupid shit. And again, thought I was untouchable, right? So after our first year in Vernon, did the same thing. We went camping and on this bender and I was basically making a spin-off a Molotov cocktail and I would chug a beer and fill it full of gas and I'd put the lid back on and I had this little like rock nest almost in the fire and I'd I'd set it in there and you know a minute or so would go by and it would kind of the flames would bellow and it'd be like a flamethrower 30 feet into the air and you know highly unsmart obviously uh, but it went off without a hitch that first year and again I was just feeding this ego and people thought I was crazy and whatever and so this next year, after my second year, all the guys on the team were asking me, like, Pat, are you going to do your pyro show again when we go camping? And I said, fuck yeah. And so in my head, I'm like, hey, how can I make this bigger and better? And well, in my head, I'm like, well, I need more gas. So that's when I, I did the same thing, but I used a Colt 45 bottle and I had a wine bottle. So I'm kind of going around the party to try and paint a picture i have these two bottles full of gas with the lids on in my like kangaroo pouch in my my sweater pocket and we'd obviously been drinking and i'm going around the party and all of a sudden i'm soaking wet so the bottoms of the two bottles hit, hit and shattered and so now i have on my torso a liter and a half of gas and uh i know that i have gas on myself right? And there's a fire there. And I'm somewhat cognizant. I'm, you know, I'm not going to just go walk right into the fire. But I just didn't respect the dangers of gas and, and the vapors. And I, to this day, I don't know why I did it. But I remember in my head, I'm like, I reek like gas, I just gotta, I gotta get the sweater off. So I peel my sweater off, I keep what I think is a safe distance away. And I just toss it into the fire. And kind of give the ground a little kick and it was just like a detonator cord of dynamite just kind of like it just followed me and up I went yeah unfortunately I bolted into the woods and there was no snow there was no grass there was no water there was just dirt and rocks and uh you're fully on fire yeah yeah so I just bolted and that, again I you look back and you're like man that's the worst thing I could have done but I, I you're not in control at that point I started rolling around. It wouldn't go out. People were yelling at me to to stop and just they're trying to they're chasing after me. And that's where we talked a bit before this, but I was never in any pain. I just remember like feeling very warm. And there was obviously like a very extreme sense of panic. 
I don't couldn't tell you how long I was on fire for. I really don't know. Too long, obviously. But that panic eventually started getting less. And then that's where, like I said before we hopped on here, like there was this really fucked up, like eerie calmness to the whole thing after that panic started to wear off. And again, I think that's probably like what death feels like. And I almost started succumbing in a way, I guess. And but and that's when I finally got hit, uh, pushed down, and then all the guys chasing me started beating me with with their jackets and and trying to put this thing out. And thankfully, uh, eventually, it did go out. You look at that picture of you in the burn ward. I mean, you are. I mean, I've seen some people burned and bandaged. Like you're burned. Yeah, it was bad. I mean, the, the next thing that, that happened was, so I don't really realize, like, again, I'm in so much shock. I didn't realize the extent of the damage until, I mean, shortly after that. I remember I got sat on a cooler. So I'm ass naked. Like, there's nothing left of my clothes by this point. They're all, I remember I had, like, the waistband on my jeans. That was really it. And everything else was gone. And, uh, so I'm ass naked. And, and that's when I just, I started kind of looking around at people and they're staring at me and people are like crying. People are panicking. They're like screaming, like we, we got to get him to a hospital. Like we don't have service here. Like what, what the fuck do we do? He's like, look at him. And that's where I'm, and people are like covering their noses. That smell. That was probably, that's one thing I'll never forget is the smell was just like, unlike anything. Um, but that's when I met their gaze and I looked down and I was, that's when I was like, holy fuck this is this is not good yeah we piled in the car and thankfully one of the guy's girlfriends wasn't drinking and i feel bad for her that she had to put up with me coming out of that shock for for 20 plus minutes because it was not a good time but we ended up making it to the hospital and i mean i always try and find some sort of humor in the story now and i can talk about it but i like picture the emergency room at uh you know whatever one or two o'clock in the morning this is Right. You probably got your guy that got, you know, the shit kicked out of him at the bar. He might need some stitches. Maybe you got a screaming baby. Someone's got chest pains or or whatever. Right. And, the, and then in comes this guy running into the emergency room, screaming. He's ass naked, bleeding, dirty, burnt. Like I had rocks embedded in my skin and shit. Like I, it was pretty ugly. And I can just imagine what people's reactions were when I ran in naked into the emergency room and that's where it went black so i think they just hit me with whatever and put me to sleep as soon as i ran in the doors really because i don't remember anything after that that's when my parents they got the call i was i got airlifted to vancouver hospital two or three hours after that um it would have been right around two because my parents said they just made it to vernon which is you know just under two hours drive they just made it to see me getting wheeled in the stretcher to the to the ambulance to take me to the to the airport to the helicopter. I don't think they fully realized how bad it was until I mean, this is what they're telling me now, or you know, months later. They didn't know it was that bad. Cause you see that picture. Um, and that was even before so my face got fully wrapped. So that picture was like taken by my billet. That's the only picture I have in the, my whole recovery or anything. So he he took that. That would have been right away. I mean, probably 30 minutes, an hour after. And then, but I woke up full mommy, like my face, everything. Those type of burns, you're pretty much 100% burned. You know, so my face and 
the lower half of my legs were like just a bad first degree, I think. So some some blisters, but I think precautionary, they just they just wrapped the whole thing and it, it was definitely a pretty grim sight for sure. As you're telling your story with the experience that I've had with people that are burned, as you're talking, I'm going, he should have died. You are someone so was, lucky that you're someone was looking out for me, I think. Yeah. Don't discount your human spirit too, right? The human spirit's pretty incredible. And then, you know, just because we're talking about it, people in this province, unless they need to use it, don't understand how important that life flight is because those people up there can't deal with this type of burn, right? There's only one place that can do it. And they got to get you there in a certain amount of time, right? There's swelling, there's infection. And that infection is the killer, right? The first couple of days were pretty foggy. I don't remember a lot. I mean, I obviously wasn't in a coma or anything, but you're pretty hopped up on morphine and I slept for pretty much two days. Coming out of that, you're you're a little bit more aware, but I remember that was always like, so, I mean, that's that's part of the story when I first talked to the doctor, but the nurses and everything, it was always like infection and pain management. That's what we need to focus on here. Um, and that was always the dialogue. Yeah, infection was the big one. Six weeks you're in the burn ward? Yeah, so I was supposed to be in there a lot longer, or that's what they told me, and that's a big part of the story of, I I call it defying the NHL odds, the title, because I don't advocate for for people to uh, defy medical professionals and not listen to them, but that's what I did. And that's where I guess kind of, that's where the story gets good, or that's the meat of the whole journey in that burn unit. Again, going back, you got to get there in a certain amount of time. And, and even at that, they don't really know what the damage is those first couple of days. Cause you, they haven't seen anything, right. They just know this guy's, you know, you're pretty fucked up. You're there's only 10 beds at the time in, in the burn unit. I don't know what it is now, but so you're the 10 worst burns in the province. Right. And uh, so they like, we need to have this first debridement procedure done, which I mean, that word might as well be called torture. I mean, you're familiar with it, I'm sure, right? And maybe some of the listeners, but that was day three, I think. I had this the first debridement, and that's when the doctor was like, okay, that's when I'm going to get a look and and see what we're up against here. So I come out of that anesthetic a couple hours later, and that's when he kind of laid everything down, and he said, A, you're lucky to be alive, and you know someone was really looking out for you because my face wasn't going to be... I mean, all the damage was to my my stomach and legs. And he's like, your face isn't going to be permanently scarred and we're not going to have to graft over your joints, which is like, talk about like someone looking out for me. My grafts literally stop right above my knee. If that's over my knee, that's a whole different graft. So he says, you're 40% second, third degree burns. You're very lucky. You're going to make a full recovery, but you're going to be in here for a while. And it's going to be a long summer and it's going to be a long road here. And that was kind of what he said. And again, pain management, infection, I mean, smoke inhalation, like that first week, you're not quite out of the the woods in terms of high danger risk, right? Or complications. That was what he told me. So in my head, the first thing I'm thinking about is, is hockey. So I'm like, okay, I have camp in three and a half months. And my NHL was always the NCAA. So like, that's what, that's what my dream was what we said I could just add a couple more layers to my game I had one more year so I was just about 20 at this time and you can only play junior hockey till you're 21 or you can turn 21 so 
I have one more year left. I'm like, I know I can get a scholarship somewhere. Maybe it's Div 3. And so that's what I'm thinking about. I'm in the hospital wrapped like a mummy. So I asked the doctor at camp in three and a half months, what does that look like? And <laughs> I'll never forget the look on his face. And he kind of just, right away I knew. I was like, oh, fuck. And he, he just, you could tell he's like, this poor kid thinks he's going to be playing hockey in a few months. And he just said, he was kind of speech. He's just like, listen, these recoveries take years, not not months. You're not going to be playing hockey in a few months here. Like, I just want you to focus on getting out of here, getting healthy, getting better. Let's look at getting you in a pair of skates in a couple years in a non-competitive environment. And so that was that. My career was over at that moment. And part of me was depressed and and upset about it. But I was also like, in a way, accepting and my stupidity and I accepted the consequences in a way. I mean, I was just happy. I was going to live a pretty normal life. I'd have some scars to tell the story, but yeah, like I could still live a pretty normal life. Right. And and so that was kind of where I was at for, for the first few weeks. When you caught on fire and your friends put you out. So when firefighters arrive to a burn victim, our number one goal was to cool that person because even though their fire is out, their flesh is still burning. Right. And people don't understand that. So you didn't, your friends didn't have any method of cooling you. They only had a method of putting the fire out. And the other thing people don't understand is gasoline. It's not something that you can just put out because no. it's fume based and you, yeah. you had a leg, it moves around to the backs, like, but it's very hard to put out and people don't understand yeah. like your friends, a did an amazing job. B, they, they got you to the hospital when they were in shock. Yeah. You you had somebody smart enough in an eMERGE ward to get a helivac started. Like all those things take time and all those people have to make the right decisions at the right time for it to happen. And it all happened. And then your will to live, you said something very cool is that you mentally started to heal your body. All about visualizations. And you're now in the burn ward. You're sitting there. The doctors told you you're freaking done. Yeah. And now you're depressed. I, I will go back and say just with everyone involved and how yeah, instrumental that is to survival, really. The first thing that started hurting was my arm and hand. And so I, my buddies gave me a cooler full of ice. And the doctor said that saved my right arm and hand. Because they were talking about like bone graft on my right hand at one point. Like, it looks pretty good. <laughs> right. And to your point, it cooled that. But yeah, the rest of that damage, I don't, you don't feel the third degree, right? It's that deep. And so I, this was what I started feeling the most or the soonest, I guess. And so I had that in the cooler, the whole drive there. And he said that that saved, saved my right arm and hand from like a lifetime of disuse, really. I didn't think about it until you mentioned that cooling it as fast as you can, right? And that's where like, man, if there would have been snow or a lake where we're not even talking you and I <laughs> I don't say I'd never talk to you but it would have been a different different injury right so this is where this is again where where everything kind of gets good so I get a call two weeks into my stay in the burn unit from my coach in Vernon and he said how you doing and I said well you know been better he said hey I, I just got off the phone with the assistant coach from Brown University and they're looking for this type of player and his exact words were we need a guy to put the fear of God in the defenseman of the Ivy league. And I mean, that's what I did. I was probably the best hitter in the league and I just punished guys. 
So my coach is like, well, I got the perfect guy for you. There's just, you know, one major problem. He's burnt himself through Christmas in the hospital and the future doesn't look great. This is what my coach is telling me. So he says, they want to talk to you. Just, just give them a call. I know you got the time, blah, blah, blah. Remember, I'm wrapped like a mummy, like my hands, I can't move. So my parents take the number down. They put the phone into like my neck. And here I am talking to this, this coach from Brown. First time I've heard a Rhode Island accent, which was a whole other uh, experience. But so I talked to this guy. It was left really open-ended. You know, they said, we're sorry to hear what happened. We wish you the best in recovery. And that was kind of it. They just wanted to talk to me and just kind of give me best wishes. And I remember I hung up the phone and I remember just getting really emotional. Again, thinking like, man, I've worked my whole life to just talk to one of these guys and have an opportunity to go play college hockey in the States. And and here I am and look, look what I've done to myself. Look where I am. So that's when I started asking questions. I'm like, okay, so, so why can't I play hockey? And there was a really decent and a good list of why I couldn't play. Right. Infection was the biggest. So I had open second degree burns under my gear later that year, not to jump ahead too much, but those areas just, they take forever to, to close up. Right. The grafts themselves eventually closed up way faster for me than the than those stubborn second degree areas that, you know, you're covering them, you're ripping the scabs off, you're covering them, you're ripping the scabs off. That's life for like six months, you know. That was the biggest infection. The skin grafts were going to be too limiting, too painful, blah, 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 all these reasons. Um, I couldn't, you can't sweat from those areas. So again, at the time, they don't know I'm going to have a significant amount of my body grafted. I mean, you would probably know a little bit more about this potentially, but I think what I remember is if you creep up to like 40-50% grafts, there's major complications there with heart rate and sweating, right? And cooling down. And so they mentioned that I was going to be in a full body suit for 2 years. The list just went on these reasons why, you know, I couldn't play and I just remember I just kept thinking I'm like, basically you're just telling me it's going to hurt. And it can't be worse than what I've just experienced the last two weeks. That was a little bit naive thinking, but at the time, that's what I thought. So I just said, I'm like, no, I don't accept that. And so I said, fuck that. I said, I'm going to go play hockey in, in three and a half months and get a scholarship to Brown. And yeah, I just said, hey, the doctors, I'm not like everyone else. I don't accept this. And so this is when people ask me, like, how did you discover visualization? Because that's what I coach and that's what I preach and teach now this is how because I didn't have a choice I, my mind was all I had I was bedridden in a, in a burn unit so I mean I would have never made the NHL without getting burnt and discovering the power of the mind and and again adversity is a gift and blessing in disguise like I would have never had this experience uh, without this injury I'm not advocating for anyone to go light play with fire and, and gas but uh, you know, we're all going to go through adversity. And and this was the reason that happened was to open up this whole world for me of the power of the mind. And so when I had made that choice, and I think there's a lot of power in just making a choice, because that it's a realization that we need to have is like, you always have a choice, right? It doesn't might not seem like it, but you do. And so I made a choice that day. And I said, I'm going to do this. And my I was willing to die before giving up. And that was my mentality. Once I made that choice, I said, okay, so having said that, how the hell am I going to get out of here? And I had heard of visualization. 
but that was the only thing I could do. So I just started becoming obsessed and I started visualizing all day long. And so I would visualize a bunch of things. The first thing was healing. So I would just imagine like from a cellular level, those damaged cells getting, getting healthy and breathing energy there. And I, I just imagine those grafted areas shrinking and getting healthier. And I would just imagine like feeling really good and reframing the pain. That was the crazy thing was we, we both know that burns fucking hurt. There might be the worst injury there is out there. But once I started reframing it where I was almost using it as fuel in a way, if that makes sense. And I would almost imagine like my body was eating it and consuming it in a good way. It, it like, it got a little better. And it's, it was crazy how, I mean, not to say that there weren't bad days, but just in, in general, it was just remarkable. And then, and then I would visualize the other, or the other things were, I'd imagine walking out of the hospital and then I'd imagine putting on and playing or putting on my gear, playing in that home opener in September in whatever, three and a half months. And then I'd always end the visualization with that signing my commitment letter to Brown. So I would just see that signature over and over and over again. And I'd imagine talking to the coach on the phone and telling my parents and really like painting an experience more. I mean, we can talk about visualization and the science behind it, but it it's important to like, you want to create an experience. You want to make it as real as you can, because just thinking about it isn't quite enough to like really evoke change. And so just having that experience it really just transported me into a whole different reality. So it brought me out of my physical body. I mean, the cool thing about your your imagination and visualization is you can be ever who, whoever the fuck you want in your mind, right? And the more I did that, the more I just, I just had such a deep sense of like belief and trust that I was going to do it. And it just, that was just cultivated daily in the burn unit. And that's not to say it made it smooth sailing, but uh, yeah. And so I ended up getting out of there in six weeks, which they told me it was going to be way longer than that. And I attribute that a lot of that to the visualization. I mean, granted, I was supposed to complete the first phase of rehab there. And I just, I basically told them I was going to leave if they didn't let me leave. <laughs> my I semi, semi jokingly said to them and my parents, like, I'm leaving here. I mean, I've got my surgery why can't I just do this at home? And I mean, the answer was obviously that, you know, not everyone is going to tend to their graphs properly. And if you don't, these are going to be complications. And, but in my head, I'm like, if there's anyone that's going to follow the protocol, trust me, it's going to be me. And then I'm going to take it even a step further. So that's kind of how the whole burn unit played out after I got that call. It's like ignited something in me with the visualization. There's science proving that this isn't some like made up thing. It, it's it's there coming to light more and more, I think, as time goes, which is cool. People relate to it as the human spirit, but it's all of that, right? right? It's yeah. all of what you did. It's amazing. You're you should be on Oprah. You and Oprah could have. a. You know what I mean? Like it, it's, it's yeah. amazing what you did. That's the most fascinating part for me about your story is that part, because I have a lot of friends who are sick with cancer. They're all firefighters. Everything you said there resonates with people who are open minded enough. They've never been where you've been, so they're not going to be able to really grasp onto that thought, right? I mean, I try and change that now with like people that I work with and, and teach, right? Is it, I mean, that's exactly what manifestation is, right? It's that alignment of energy that 
you're now projecting because we're very electric beings, right? And we project an energy, you know, an energy of depression, guilt, anger, that all has a different frequency than like gratitude, joy, whatever, that just all looks different. And you attract that same back, right? That's exactly what that quantum field and, and what manifestation really is. And it, it's not a quack thing. It, it's real. And I've lived it. So it, it definitely was, yeah, it was like a spirit awakening experience for sure. Three and a half months later, you're putting the skates on. How did that feel? Terrible. <laughs> I mean, the doctors were right. I had no business playing hockey. I mean, if you would have seen what I looked like under my gear, you would have thought I was crazy. And I, I was crazy, I guess. But it's funny. Not funny isn't the right word, but it's interesting. So once I had this mindset and I was, again, I was willing to die. Like my body was fighting back with all it had. Uh, I had kidney stones the day after I got out of the hospital. I had an appendectomy a week before camp. They had to cut through my graft to get my appendix out. And because I was like, I was trying to train and shit. And my body's like, hey, we're trying to recover from this surgery still. And it was just fighting back. I had like this pelvis issue where I, I could barely even walk. I was I was on crutches at, eventually in this in that last season coming to and from the rink. That's when you could get we could get shot up with any painkiller we wanted. So I was getting loaded up with Toradol and cortisone just so I could play like because I could barely walk. Again, the doctors are right. I was I was holding on by a thread. I eventually was was barely even playing. I was only playing special teams because I was in rough shape. But I was just holding on because I knew Brown was coming to watch me play. And thank God they eventually did because I wouldn't have made it the whole season, I don't think. I mean, looking back, who knows? But I didn't want to be getting shot up with those painkillers. Like I'm talking like every day I was on those things. And obviously, it's not healthy for you to do that for an extended period of time. So anyways, they came and watched me. I ended up getting my scholarship a couple months later. But I didn't feel good for a long time. So you talk about that first skate, that was when, again, that daily battle of can I do this versus, you know, having that visualization and knowing I could, right? The governor is always there and that's where the you feed the pain and the negative shit and you got to have this battle every day because, yeah, I was, I could barely skate. I really, like it was, the doctors were right and I just, again, mixed in some, some hockey in the meantime, but. So once I got my scholarship, I that's why if anyone looked, if you saw my stats, I only played 20 something games my last year in junior, because as soon as I got the scholarship, I met with my coaches, the coaches from Brown and, you know, and my parents and even just going in, in interim with myself, like, okay, now it's, it's, it's time to get healthy. You did it. And uh, so I, I stopped playing to just go back and rehab and, and focus on that. But yeah, it's funny. Cause I look back, I'm like, man, what if I would have just listened or what if i would have given up like my life looks a lot different you know what was four years of uh, college on rhode island like again kind of where the story gets good i mean my wife always says she likes this part of the story better because so when i got to brown like a my perspective on life had changed and so i just went and had fun i was like i made it this is it this is my nhl i never even thought about pro hockey ever because I wasn't that good. I had no reason to really think about it. So I was, I took pre-med. So I got, which is cool. I got to learn about the brain and, and the body and, and scratch the surface on that neuroplasticity and, and all that stuff that, you know, I was like, wow, I almost got to kind of learn about what I had been through in a way with that recovery. And 
I worked my ass off. Don't get me wrong. I was in the best shape in the team, but I just had fun and no cares in the world. And I didn't have the wherewithal to think like, what's next? Like, hey, if I could do that, what else could I do? I didn't think, <laughs> I didn't think that until after my junior year. So after my third year, my, I'm 24 now. The coach comes up, one assistant coach comes up to me and says, hey, you ever thought about playing pro hockey? And I said, nope, literally never crossed my mind. I think I laughed in his face and he just said, you know, I, I really think if you worked on your game, you could have a solid five, 10 year career in the American League and which is a league right below the NHL, right? And maybe even get a shot in the show one day. He's like, I've never seen anyone hit the way you can hit. If you can add a little bit of that skill to your game, then he's like, you you could do good things. And I kind of was just like, wow, thank you. And I didn't really know what to say. But that's when I, I went home that night. And I had just, again, this kind of like this defining moment. Where I'm like, hey, idiot, what have you been doing these last three years? And that's when I was like, huh. I was like, I could play pro hockey. That'd be kind of cool. And I'm like, man, if I can come back from that burn injury to come back and play hockey, and I'm, I just thought, like, why can't I play in the NHL? I mean, that seems easier than what I did a few years back. <laughs> yeah, I just I made another choice that day, and just I just became obsessed with. I'm, I just said, I'm going to make the NHL. I'm going to come out of nowhere, but I'm going to do it. And that's where I had to go back. So I was like, okay, well, what do I know? How am I going to get there? And it was all this. It was all the visualization piece. And so that's where I came up with this idea of like, uh, I think this, uh, Joe Dispenza talks about like kind of the mind movie. Like that's what I do now. And that's what I, what I teach. And, and that's like, thank God I had this experience in the burn unit because when at Brown, I'm 24, that's where I had this idea, not even knowing anything about what we just talked about, about, you know, the quantum field and all this stuff. I was like, I created this movie in my head and I just visualized this movie every day whenever I could. And it just created this obsession, right? Because my brain goes, I mean, it feels really good, right? I mean, so I would go from like, I would start with my childhood. I'd go into the burn injury and, and in a way like that would give me a superpower throughout that journey and then where I wanted to go. So I'd go back and visualize what that recovery was like. And, and again, like feed that spirit because I'm like, man, if I can do that, I'm for sure can do this. And then I would visualize that journey, that upcoming year. And I would just dominate that senior year in my head. I'd play games in my head and and execute everything on the ice. And then I'd, I'd always end it with the NHL. So I'd walk out the tunnel for my first game and see my parents and the emotion there with like we didn't even know if this kid was going to survive a few years ago let alone do this and that's just the crazy part of the story is as soon as I did that I went from probably like six months I went from no one in the NHL knowing who I was to probably a top five free agent in all of the NCAA you know had more points my last year than my first three years combined the visualization and the mindset like drove me on the physical side too, right? Because I had this just obsession and I I was going to, again, my mindset was like, you better cut my legs off before I give up on this and I'm going to make sure this happens. So that's the cool part of the story is that, you know, as soon as I had this realization, I mean, I always kind of like to think of life is that we all have this map set out for us 
in a way. And, but most of us don't find the map or we find it, we don't know how to navigate it. And, but there's signs along the way. Right. And so I've had these signs uh, almost like dangling a carrot, but I think like in the call in the burn unit, I could have just been like, okay, well I could have done nothing with it too. Right. Or I got this call from the coach and I in Brown and I could have said, yeah, I'll see how it goes. Like, that'd be cool. It would have looked a lot different if that's the way I had thought. Right. And I look back now and I, and the fact that I ended up signing with Vancouver of all teams, part of me is thinks like, man, have I been manifesting this my whole life? And I didn't even know it because I grew up like a Canucks fan. I was obsessed with the guy like Pavel Burry, Kirk McLean, Trevor Lynn. Like, man, I grew up just like idolizing these guys. Vancouver had their camp in Vernon one year I was playing there and I was 18, 19. I'm like, that was the farthest thing from my memory. Like those guys were like larger than life. And I was like, never for a second did I think I could do that. And the fact that I was in Vancouver in the burn unit and five years later, like I'm on the, the Canucks. Like it was just crazy how it, how it all worked out. I actually, when I signed, I called my parents. <laughs> That's This is the, the funny part of the story. I called my dad because I never told anyone, right? I had this plan. No one knew. And my parents knew I was having a good year and I was getting some attention from pro scouts, but they didn't know about the NHL. And so I told my parents, I said, Hey, I, you know, I was telling you, I was talking to pro teams and they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, by pro teams, I meant like a lot of pro teams in the NHL. And my dad was like, fuck off. Like he didn't believe me. And I'm like, I'm serious. I just signed with the Canucks for two years. You can go probably look on the computer. And they were like, Holy shit. Like you, why did you not tell us about this? And uh, so that was pretty cool. They didn't believe me when I when I called them, but it's been a crazy ride. Did get you into the NHL because you learned Absolutely. all the skills and those tools and that you yeah. learned it all through adversity. I know I wouldn't have played in the NHL without that. There's no way. I mean, I've had these moments after hockey in my personal life too, what you just said. There's always signs that are right there and you don't always realize it. You have to look for them sometimes. So the crazy thing is I had these experiences. I didn't discount visualization, but I didn't I didn't appreciate it for what it had given me until afterlife. I mean, that, that's a whole other, like after hockey was arguably harder for me. Um, so I always say, you know, the journey to through hockey and through the burn unit to the NHL was like physical and mental adversity and, and overcoming and dealing with that. After hockey... That's when I got kicked in the ass and it was like the emotional, spiritual side that I was just a young boy in that regard and, you know, didn't know how to deal with, you know, the identity crisis that, so I, my career ended in the NHL from a fusion, a neck fusion, it just ended. And so now it's like, okay, who am I? What am I going to do for the rest of my life? I was going through a divorce. My dad got diagnosed with ALS. I was trying to find a career. So all this, these things just kept happening. And I remember I got to a point, I hit rock bottom and I was like, what happened to my life? Like two years ago, I was making good money in the NHL and I had no cares in the world and everything was right. And, and how the hell did I get here? Again, I had like a rock bottom moment one day and I was not in a good place that summer. And again, I made a choice and I said, I gotta, I gotta stop this. And I went back to the visualization piece and I, because up until that point, I was just consumed with all the negative shit and like just thinking about how shitty my life was, but more like how shitty I perceive my life to be, right? Because your perception is greater than your reality or it is your reality. As soon as I did that, 
and I, I started visualizing and, and having gratitude for like everything that I had done and, and that I had and that was good in my life and what I wanted in life, right? So I, I pictured, you know, I wanted a close family like I had, which had been stripped away, right? And when I was in that rock bottom too. And, you know, like a, a meaningful career and just just visualizing myself being at peace and, and happy, which I wasn't, right? But again, you get to be whoever you want to be in that visualization and your imagination. As soon as I did that, everything changed. Again, I met my my now wife like a few months later. I mean, I have my own uh, cancer story with visualization with, with, my, with my wife now. I've had these, all these experiences with hockey, without hockey. So now I know, and it took three or four powerful moments to know that this is something that I do every day now because I know how powerful it is before I just had this realization when I had an agenda or I had like shit to fix. But now I'm like, okay, it's more than that. This is something that you can practice on the daily. Right. And again, you get to imagine whatever you want to to cultivate and, uh, and be thankful for. So it's, it's changed my life uh, for sure. The shame hole that you talked about, you were kind of in, would you say it was a shame hole? Yeah. Oh, for sure. A lot of it was guilt too. I'm like, I, I even had that a little bit, even playing in the NHL, just dealing with some of the anxieties around fighting. And, but yeah, especially after the shame hole. And I just felt like a piece of shit because I, and, I, and guilty of like, why, why am I, I sh you're better than this or right. And you feel, but you don't want to talk to anyone about it because you're not, you weren't taught to do that. So that's where you just, you sink deeper and deeper into it. Right. Somebody's going to listen to this freaking podcast in Northern Ireland and go, Okay, I don't feel alone. I, I just listen to that dude's right. story and they don't feel alone. There's an Aaron Volpatti out there that's struggling right now. What could you say to him? You're out there teaching people. Aaron, I've seen you speak. You're tall, you're proud, you're confident. You've got it all together, but that wasn't always the way. What about yeah. the guy out there who's struggling that you might be able to reach him in this podcast? It's not going to seem like it in the moment potentially, but you'll look back one day and be thankful for the journey and for for the hard times it won't seem like that moment if you give it you know that space and the realization that again you'll look back one day and in a way be thankful for it because it you know it can make it that much better when you when you can overcome something like that and you get on the other side that's where you have the the gratitude and the thankfulness every day and the appreciation where you've came from it might not seem like it in the moment, but you will be thankful for, for the journey. Don't give up. I just so, finished the audio book. So look for that. And if people are, you know, if you're an audio book person, yeah, the books on, on my website, AaronVolpatti.com or Amazon, you can find it there. I mean, I talk about all this stuff, all the journey. So my programs I teach now, I have my whole 12 week program in the book at the end too. So you get a little bit of everything if you're interested in in what how can i incorporate visualization in my life right now there's like a third of the book on that you can definitely get it there aaron i want to thank you for raising awareness for the british columbia firefighters burn fund you know what firefighters always need a face but when they get one they need it to be a good one and you're a good face so thank you yeah, for thank you, Steve. thank you for taking the time to uh help those guys raise some funds it's important and you know it is but people yeah. don't know anything about the burn ward unless someone yeah. they know has been in there. It's a special, special place. 
it is totally is i mean it was part of the reason why i decided to eventually write the book is like hey i can give back with this too right to your point it it is a special place so that's why i, I love doing these and you know i just meet all these great people like yourself doing things for great causes and and really just trying to help people i think we're all in it for the same reason and and that's exactly that right regardless of what industry or whatever you're just trying to help people you know have a lot of strong connection to mental health and, and the burn fund specifically but i just love people doing cool things like yourself and and who have been in this shit too and you know again you relate and you're like again i'm not alone I, other people go through this and how can we come together right and make it a better world and have resources for people i'm glad i got to connect you connect to people and that connection creates energy and that energy makes positive change right so totally keep doing what you're doing it's awesome yeah likewise steve to the over 30 countries of listeners and supporters three seasons it's been an amazing journey thank you so much for listening take care 